Hello, and welcome to Final Show Films. I'm John, the executive producer here, and I've got a few pre-show notes for you. First, a reminder. All of the content we produce is available on our website at finalshowfilms.com, as well as youtube.com slash sensetaku, sensetaku.podbean.com, twitch.tv slash sensetaku, and on iTunes. We are only able to do the things we do thanks to the kind support of our Patreon donors. We give a special shout-out to our $25 tier supporters, Antitonic and Cat Waterflame. If you'd like to support us that way, be sure to check it out. Secondly, a thank you to the folks over at 411mania.com. They produce articles and content related to wrestling, MMA, movies, music, and gaming. Go check them out. We appreciate their support as well. And lastly, be sure to subscribe, comment, and rate, if possible, wherever you listen to or watch our content. It helps us know what you like, what you don't like, and helps us make more content. Feedback is always appreciated. With all that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode twenty-one, where we're going to be taking over. Where we're going to be taking on uh, Critical Role, episode twenty-one, Trial of the Take, part four. I'm John uh, at John A Bates on Twitter, and with me today is Jack. Hey, everybody, this is Jack. I'm at Alt F Four Gamers on Twitter, and Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy, and I'm at, at J Thomas Four One One Mania on Twitter. And uh, our episode today is going to be starring Orion Akaba as Tiberius, Liam O'Brien as Vaxel Dom, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, guest starring Will Friedle as Kashaw Vesh, guest starring Will Wheaton as Thorbeer Falbeck, and as always, starring Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Uh, and previously on Critical Role, Vox Machina found themselves in some legal trouble in the city of Vasselheim, breaking a contract for the guild called the Slayer's Take. It was a, it was a monster hunter's guild, and they decided to hunt their monster. Uh, to make sure that they weren't sent to the seat of judgment uh, or, or arrested and tried for the infraction they didn't realize they had made, they were given the opportunity to join the guild, which would help them you know, correct their issue. The party was split up into two, uh, into two different parties and sent after two different targets. Part one and two revolved around the first half of the party, uh, which was Grog, Scanlan, Pike, uh, Grog, Scanlan, Pike, Percy, and Vex, uh, uh, with two additional members of the, from the Slayer's Take going to hunt a white dragon. And part three and four is centered around, uh, uh Tiberius, Vax, Keyleth, uh, Tiberius, Vax, Keyleth, along with Kshaw and Thorbeer uh, sent after a, ra- a Rakshasa. Uh, Rakshasa. Uh, the entity was apparently somewhere in the city, masquerading as the assist as the assistant to the owner of the Velvet Cabaret, an establishment for upper class pleasure seekers. And the party, after forcing the individual to reveal themselves, uh, followed him through a tunnel underneath the underneath the establishment into a long subterranean tunnel fraught with traps that was set to protect it. They managed to avoid the uh, traps and then found themselves on a sort of slick downward slope and that they all eventually fell in, although Keyleth and Tiberius decided to jump down while the others tried to continue walking. <laughs> um, actually, sorry, Cash fell, then Keyleth and Tiberius jumped, and then Vax and Dorbier tried to walk. 
more or less. Mm-hmm. Upon splashing down into what appeared to be some sort of underground cistern or a collection of compost and refuse that had been rotting, uh, they began to hear skittering and screeching sounds throughout the room as hundreds of small tentacles with two uh, large thorny ones jettisoning out uh, with, with two large uh, thorny tentacles jettisoning out of the dung heap um, along with a central body full of teeth as one giant gaping maw, and that's where we pick up. Mm-hmm. So, yep. standing at the bottom of the cistern, Tiberius and Kashaw and Keyleth stare down a giant Otiug. O- fuck, how do you say it again? You said Otiug. it right. Otiug. Otiug. Yeah. Otiug. yeah, you said it. Right. Okay, you said it right. It's a weird. It's it. It's it's a weird word. I'm not sure how they came up with it in Dungeons and Dragons monster manuals. Um, it's also an old creature. I think the f- yeah, it is. It is oh, classic yeah, that one, D&D. That one, that one dates it back. It goes all the way yeah. back to first, first, first yeah. edition advanced. For those that don't know, an Ultiug is basically a body with te- a body with tentacles and a giant mouth. It's not 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 an appealing looking creature. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, it's, no, it's a it's a garbage plant monster. Yeah, yeah, without any leaves. Um. It's the sort of thing that it's, you would expect actually, to be in Oscar the Grouch's basement. Or or a Sarlacc with legs and smaller. Yeah. Um, it's not pleasant, is what we're saying. Um, uh, and as they stare down, a massive number of rats scramble out of the trash and refuge. So they've got an Otiug and giant rats, or a swarm of rats. Um, they roll initiative. We get uh, Will Wheaton's first roll of the night is a two. Yep. <laughs> um, on initiative, uh, brother yeah, there Cash. Was a fantastic thing going on in the background. I think where certain people were making donations to charity every time he crit failed and stuff. It was fantastic. <laughs> yes, it was brilliant. Uh, Kashal looks up, wondering where the final two party members are, and as he moves a little, and unleashes, <laughs> uh, he then moves. It's like, where the fuck are they? Uh, and uh, unleashes um, sacred flame. I think on the beast. Was it sacred flame or? Guiding bo- out spiritual sacred fire. flame, sacred flame, sacred yeah. flame. Um, way, uh, on the beast, which does which does damage, which means his sacred flame is instantly better than half of our final show film sacred flames that are ever cast. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, true. Causing, a, causing a howl of pain as his tentacles lash about the small room. Tiberius weighs a number of options as suppose before tossing a fireball at the back of the at the back wall of the cistern, trying to keep the blast from hitting Keyleth, uh, and as he uh, as he as it fades, he channels arcane power to fire off a quick a quickened scorching ray. Um, sorry, using the variant the variant home rules that apparently lots of people are using with fifth ed and not realizing that they picked it up here, uh, which is um, <laughs> you can quick cast certain spells as a bonus action when you when you use that ability as a sorcerer. Um, the beast rises as the multiple flame strikes blast it from multiple sides, and huge sections of its body uh, sort of charred. It now lashes out with its cynicals and grabs T- Keyleth and Tiberius, and it holds them while taking a bite at them, and also emitting a foul odor, which uh, gives sort of an idea that it has something to do with poison um, to the to the characters themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which is actually a, a point I want to stop on for a moment. What do you guys so divining a creature's type, air quotes, uh by what it looks like or smells like or what color it is, it's a fairly classic narrative trope. Um 
you know, in, in like, uh, sort of the, the, the er example of this is Final Fantasy's enemies, which are often color coded to depict what element they are strong against versus weak against. Things right. like bombs that are literally little elementals of fire, which tells you, oh, they're strong as fire, weak against ice. When, when everybody, every, everybody, when they GM, they sort of describe their monsters slightly differently. How do you guys feel, both from a, from a game master storyteller perspective and from a narrative writing perspective, about visual hints like this? Well, I'll take the reins on this one if you, you yeah, go ahead. Unless Jeremy has, okay. <clears throat> See, to me, the, the visual hints and the tactics and that sort of thing generally don't figure super heavily into my writing in a universal fashion. I'm a huge fan of the character who's an expert on certain things. And I mean, there are lots of, lots of examples, um, especially in like old, uh, pulp adventure um, even dating back to people like uh, Burroughs and and other uh, writers of that caliber, who you know they, they you know Tar- Tarzan knows his way around the woods, you know that sort right. of thing. Or yeah. uh, oh, what's that book? Uh, Sign of the Beaver. Um, kind of a classic American thing about a kid in the sort of colonial era who is stuck in the woods because of circumstances, makes friends with. Uh, another boy from a nearby Native American tribe and learns how to basically not die in the woods. Um, you know, things like that, where an individual has expertise. I'm not a huge fan of, oh, well, this thing has a certain piece of anatomy or certain visual characteristics, so logically, that means fill in the blank about it. Um, it a big glowing weak point. Right, yeah. That sort of thing, because I like a level of verisimilitude in my games, and things with big glowing weak points generally die very quickly because of evolutionary pressures and natural selection. Uh, yeah. So if this is a an extant species that has survived the test of time... It's not going to have big glowing weak points on it unless it also has commensurate ways to mitigate people either noticing and or taking advantage of those. So like like dragons, like dragons. Yeah. Dragons don't have big glowing weak points. Dragons have super fucking hard scales and can spit elemental damage at you. And even if they they do have a big hollow spot in their chest cavity, (coughs) smog, they uh, manage to either keep it concealed or protected. But they are color coded in the case of chromatics. Right, yeah. And in that case, you know, it might tell you something about the thing's capabilities, and that I'm perfectly okay with, but... as far as advertising the thing's weaknesses, less so. So I, there's times where it makes sense. And uh, I will use that sometimes. Like, okay, if it's a, particularly, I like to tend to use that with, um, uh, for lack of a better term, planar things. Mm -hmm. Um, Undead, uh, 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 well, not even necessarily undead, but like, like demon type creatures, angelic type creatures, 
Because most people, if they see a demonic thing, for example, they're not going to start launching fire at it because it's probably not going to help. You don't hit something that comes from a, a, a positive outer plane with radiant damage as a rule. Um, but I also, along with using it occasionally, I'm just as much of a fan of subverting it. Um, because, yeah, it gets not just, it's not just that it makes it easier for them to kill. It's duller when you, uh, you can look at something and say, oh, well, I clearly shouldn't use fire or cold or radiant against that. And I should use this. Um, if that sort of thing doesn't come into, to plot, like, you know, at least for for a couple rounds, you have to test throwing a couple things at it. It adds to the excitement and it makes it more interesting. Um, when it comes to in a narrative sense, I'm actually really not a fan of it because to me that that seems when I read something like that, it reads as okay. They didn't think very far beyond the surface level of this. Mm-hmm. Whatever this was, they just thought, "Oh, it's a demon. I will make it. I will make it red and flamey, or whatever the case may be." Um, I think those characters tend to be a lot those adversaries, or or even not adversaries, just supporting characters or whatever, tend to be a lot more interesting when you don't have enormous visual cues as to what their, what their nature is. Um, and I think that's actually a little more challenging with, for, for, to write, which I tend to appreciate more. So I, I, I have a bit of a mixed feeling on this concept as a whole, mostly because I come from a more visual background than, mm-hmm. than written. Um, and visual cues for me are shorthand. Uh, everything you can tell somebody just by everything you can tell about a character just by looking at them is something you don't have to devote exposition to. Um, like you know the 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 giant fuck off thing made of lava. You don't have to explain. Dump water on it. You know because that that's a sort of we are cued as human beings to look at that and go, oh, it's made of lava. Dump water on it or whatever. Right. right. Um. <clears throat> There, there's, there's a, a certain amount of shorthand that you can, you, you sort of free up real estate there. This thing um, looks plant-like. Maybe we should hit it with fire. Yeah, like, and 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 at the same, at the same time, though, it is a bit of a thing where, um, you do get into those, uh, where you're, especially in a get from a GM's perspective, where you have those players that have the monster manual on hand right off the one side and you can't stop them from looking through it. You mm-hmm. can't. Uh, and so they're going to, Oh, well, it looks like this, this, and this. Da, la, 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 la. Oh, I know all of its weaknesses. I'm going to act strategically based on the information I have right here rather than playing it out as if this is my first time experiencing them. Um, and then again, I am in, in those instances, I am a fan of, like Jeremy said, subverting that, you know, making the, yeah. making the character that what, what, what you think to be true isn't necessarily true here. Um, yeah. in, in certain ways, just to throw that off. Uh, however, there is something to be said for knowing that you're about to waste your time. Um, 
because especially from a from a from a game master's perspective, we're here to have fun and we're here to we're here to enjoy ourselves and play play a fun game. And yeah, running into a puzzle situation where maybe not everything that you have is going to work is is fun. But as an example, if you're playing a character who and while this might not necessarily be the most tactically sound decision, you are a mage, a, a particular element of mage. You're a fire mm-hmm. mage, or a frost mm-hmm. mage, or a lightning mage. And you, you sort of, as you, the flavor of your character, you f- focus down into one particular school of an element. I, f- at that point, there's a little bit of a well. It would make sense for you to be able to look at this at this enemy and know whether or not they are weak or strong to your particular element. Um, because that's your specialization, like what Jack was saying. And then, like, because there's always that instance of, oh, do I know this thing is weak against, is, is immune to fire? No, you don't. Why? Because you don't. You've never encountered one before. Okay, I throw a firebolt at it. It does, it takes no damage. All right, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, that's a little bit like, that's, that's what in, in, in visual storytelling, that would be over explaining. Like, it looks like fire. I need to actually confirm that it's immune to fire rather than just being able to make that assumption. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a little bit of, a little bit of give and take there for me. Uh, I, I know, I know that it is true that yes, in nature, in nature, things that have giant glaring weaknesses don't survive because they have giant glaring weaknesses at the same time. Flamingos do. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's and that's that's perfectly fair. You know, it's <laughs> like f- flamingos are bright pink and can fly, uh, but they can't really hide, and yet they survive. Yeah, so it's mm-hmm. it's you know it, there's, a, there's a bit of give and take there. But anyways, I just thought that was an interesting thing because I I know there are, there are those two different schools of thought on being able to determine oh this thing smells bad it probably uses poison of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of mentality. Uh, the mass of rats begin to swarm over each other, taking a nip at the three now waist deep in their home, uh, but are unable to find perch on any of their bodies between their, their armor. Keyleth digs her fingers into the arm, uh, into the tentacle, grabbing her and casts a blight spell into the flesh, which causes it to wither and decay, but it manages to maintain its grip. Thorbier and Vax make their way to the edge of the tunnel, unable to get below to help their friends, but able to now see the battle below them. Kshal steps forward and tries to distract the OT... The... Otiug. Otiug, thank you. Otiug, letting loose more divine flame uh, onto it, and again doing damage, and again being better than half the times we cast it. Tiberius takes a moment to use his spells to escape the grip of the creature, moving to the far side of the room. I think he uses Missy Step? Is he using yeah. Missy Step? Yeah, mm-hmm. Yep. A little bit of teleport. Yep. E- teleport easiest way out of a grapple, just vanish. <laughs> just ha, don't be there anymore. Yep. Um, um annoyed that he escaped, it turns and begins to move towards the escape prey, which lets Kashaw stab it, landing a blow that uh landing landing a blow as it pulls Keyleth in and bites down on her. Uh she screams and it throws a tentacle at Tiberius again and manages to grab him again. At this point, Vax enters the fray, losing a pair of daggers into the thing uh, and hitting it both times. Uh, and as the blades jump back to him, a group of rats manage to to get at Keyleth and bite down her through her armor, which uh, sort, of, sort of sort of getting ganged up on all sides at this point. Uh, the 
did someone want to jump in there? I thought I heard somebody make a sharp nope. breath. No, we're good. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of combat in this episode. <laughs> yes, yes, there, there is. is. Um, uh, yeah, she blights it again, uh, which blight being an interesting, just sort of an interesting conceptually uh, thing to touch on only for a moment. The idea that uh, druids who sort of are designed to be these this bulwark uh, for nature guardian against things that would damage nature having in their repertoire a spell specifically designed to kill nature um makes for an interesting uh, sort of an interesting conceptual idea right um because blight for those who don't know that deals necrotic damage to a tar- to a touched object but deals double damage if it's a plant yep <clears throat> so druids who it's, protect it's, nature it's... are really good at killing it it's magic weed killer. Mm. Yes. Um. So yeah, she blights it again, and that kills it, uh, which which uh, causes it to drop both Keyleth and Tiberius, and it sort of sinks into the refuse pile beneath it. An angry Torbjir yells at them that they were supposed to save it for him. <laughs> the, the classic dwarf mentality there um then jumps down into the pit landing atop a heap of rats as he rolls a 13 on his athletic check uh frustrated he unleashes three mighty swings of his axe missing everything but but refuse as one axe makes its way through his armor and chomps down on his dwarfy bits as wheaton rolls a two a three and a one yep (laughs) with his attacks which we get us our first natural one of the day classic wheaton (laughs) yep so, talking about dwarfs, talking about classic dwarf act- attitude, um, do either of you know where the concept of the battle-hungry dwarf came from? I would say Norse mythology, um, if I was going to give a guess, uh, followed by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, but if you have further insight, I would be interested to hear. I mean a lot of our a lot of our perception of that within within popular fantasy tends to come from from D and D, which itself was directly I mean Gygax was very upfront about the fact that he basically slightly altered the Lord of the Rings series to make it. Um so I would say uh, my assumption is Tolkien. Yeah, and I mean, like, as far as Tolkien goes specifically, you've got the whole uh, Legolas Gimli killing competition thing at Helm's Deep, um, which the movies kind of dialed up a couple notches and carried it through the the rest because they knew it was audience appealing. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> plus, uh, there's there's a very strong flavor in Lord of the Rings that while elves tend to be a little more detached, esoteric, not dispassionate, but, you know, uh, objective, I guess. Tolkien really had a hard one for elves. Um, Dwarves are a little more down-to-earth, gritty, uh, you know, (laughs) they've, they've got a more human aspect to them while the elves are generally very otherworldly 
Um, so, so that sort of characteristic, I think, from Tolkien's perspective, melds itself more into a dwarf psyche than it would into. Uh, so to the answer, the answer comes from both. Actually, okay. <laughs> uh, the, the, the conception, the concept of dwarves as short, stocky men with long beards, comes from uh, Germanic myth, not Norse. Right. Um, they started out as these sort of warped, uh, not right, fig, sort of fae-like figures. Mm-hmm. Um, th- the term continued use in Norse mythology, but the references used by dwarves were often also applied to the Svartalfar or the, the Black dark Elves, the Dark yeah. Elves. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in Norse mythology, dwarves are either maggots uh, that festered on the flesh of Ymir. Mm-hmm. Or dark elves, and there's, there's there's sort of like a combination. So the 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 sort of the propensity towards violence comes from Norse mythology, but the short shorter stature comes from Germanic mythology, which was then combined into the classic idea of a dwarf. I think the first time it was combined was Tolkien. I don't. I have. I personally have not come across any indications of that prior to him. Of that combination uh-huh. prior to him, right. Um, so it does it is it's sort of an interesting thing where we the first time we see the sort of the what has become the stereotypical combat you know combat hungry dwarf uh was from sort of a bastardization of the two separate origins of the term of the mythological figure yes which i personally find fascinating how that sort of cultural uh, uh understanding of a subject comes along mhm yeah no um, that is pretty cool mm-hmm. yep. And I believe the reason they're, I, I I believe the reason they're commonly associated with a Scottish accent is because I mean that was going to be my next question. <laughs> I think that's also because of Tolkien. Because that has to be, yeah. The, the the sort of the um the first the the first animated adaptations of that stuff, the um, dwarves had. Such I've, an accent, yeah, and I believe it came from talking as well because it it was this uh, it was this sort of visual jab at uh the at the at the relationship between the English the elves and the Scottish the dwarves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that that was also a thing that I believe started with Tolkien as well. Um, which has just sort of grasped on from from what started as a mean spirited joke. Has now evolved into this weird <laughs> accent. In world some thing. case, amazing accents. <laughs> <laughs> You're damn welcome, you bastards. <laughs> uh, anyways, that's your that's your history of dwarves from from one uh, from one hashtag Mauritian dwarf. Oh, good God, yes. <laughs> uh, Anyways. I'm Johnny New York. <laughs> so, Kashal trudges through the muck and lets loose yet another blast of flame, scorching a number of rats that were swarming around Tiberi- or swarming towards Tiberius. Having been given a little space, he creates a stone pillar to rise himself out of the sludge and then fires back at the rats with a firebolt. The flames slam into the swarm, blasting a huge number of them to charred bits. The power of the spell comes with the grime of the pillar sends him, sends him reeling, falling back into the slime he just popped out of, at which we start to get our slapstick moments. Um, <laughs> of the greasy pole going up into the air and the dr- the greasy dragon coming down. Um, when in doubt, add pratfalls. That's true. I like to add pratfalls wherever I can. 
<laughs> uh, and it makes for some more some of the more memorable moments. You know, the uh, it it from 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 actually from a theatrical perspective, at the very least, you remember an actor falling on his ass way more than you remember an actor standing up and delivering a line. Generally, yes, that just it just sticks Phys- out. Physical comedy makes an impression, especially when there's um, visual involved. Yeah, which is why when I it's had, done well. Which when is why I had one of the more memorable runs as Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> <laughs> Because I do a lot of Pratt Falls. Anyways, um, the raining rats scurry away um, as as uh, as Vax and Torbier continue to slice them apart with dagger and axe. Um, and Tiberius uses precipitation to clean his face of grime and grease as Kashaw helps Keyleth up and compliments her fighting skills. Um. Vax notices he does. Door. he does. He compliments her fighting skills. Uh, I believe it's sort of an awkward, as Kashaw usually is, attempt at flirting. And it just comes across as awkward. Mm-hmm. Vax notices a door, which he quickly picks a lock to and leaves the door open, or heaves the door open, and opens to a long dark hallway. He eases in, seeing sets of iron bars along the hall, and tells Tiberius to follow a little way behind him with a light source, as the rest of the team pulls themselves out of the cistern. Vax moves forward, peering into each seemingly empty cell, four on each side of the long, eerily quiet hallway, and they make their way through what appears to be an unused prison area. Sconces on the wall hold no, hold no torches, and the only light they have comes from Tiberius' staff. Torbier takes a second to examine the stonework in the area, his dwarven knowledge giving him some advantage, as he rolls a six and a nine. He tells them that this place is hundreds of years old, the stone being well-placed for functional use. Keyleth pauses at one of the cell doors and sees a pile of bones, not nearly as old and dusty as the rest. The door, however, is securely locked, and Vax easily pops the rusty lock, rusty old lock, allowing them to inspect the corpse closer. Closer look shows small bits of flesh still attached to the bone, as well as little clothing that suggests this man was formerly a bastion from the Dusk Meadow area of town. Vax pats him down, but all his valuables have been taken, and Brother Cash takes a moment and casts Speak with the Dead, and the ritual soon allows the body uh, before them to speak. He tells Kishaw that he found a woman in an abandoned section of the prison who should, never, who should never have been there. When he went to offer her aid, she revealed claws and ripped out his throat. He tells them that he was killed roughly 14 weeks ago. He also tells them that he's seen a dwarf pass through more than once and points out where he saw him go. He says the guards sometimes patrol the area, but he has yet to be found. So, we talked previously about unreliable narrators, I believe. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is sort of, uh, while it doesn't turn out to be this way, this ends up being an, sort of a, uh, this is an example of, I should say, an un, a potentially unreliable information source. Uh, Speak with Dead is a, an ability that D&D players can use to talk with an, an undead, with, with a deceased corpse as long as it still has the ability to form words with its mouth right um but it does not compel them to truth correct and i don't mm-hmm. know that i don't know that we see that very often where speak with dead ends up having a character lie but it is a potential for it what do you from a storytelling perspective what do you guys think about the potential to have this you know this little lie box because you're even though you know they don't have to speak the truth when you cast it a lot of people expect to hear the truth and don't really ever question what they hear from the dead guy 
Well, because I, in my experience, most of the time when people are casting that spell, they are not casting it on people that they have just killed and are thus adversary. They're casting it on, they've walked into a tomb and they see, you know, somebody in there who was, who, who, who died previously or, uh, guards, things like that. And there would be really with the direction that they have to ask questions, there wouldn't necessarily be a reason for them to lie. Um, also, I think there's a certain level of meta-awareness of the fact that, look, if every time you cast this spell, somebody's going to lie, why would you even have it as a spell? That's true. So there is a certain reliance on, hey, yeah, we might get some some false or, or only from a certain perspective level of information, but generally the information is going to be reliable. Um, there are also ways to get around that chance of the, the, the dead thing lying. Um, if you're forward with information, um, certain spells can 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 change that. Don't have drones. Um, yep. Um, For that, those that who is- are interested in tactics, the way I rule it is a corpse cannot make a wisdom save. So as long as you cast Zone of Truth first and then speak with dead, he's fucked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because then, not only can they not lie, but because of speak with dead, they have to answer which makes those two spells more effective than individually, because oh, yeah. if you just cast Zone of Truth, they can always just not answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, 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 the I, I just want to add another slight wrinkle to the, to the statement, because... Oh, we my, love wrinkles. <laughs> my, my thoughts are... The, the, when, I'm, when I'm thinking of an of a unreliable information source, not necessarily lying, although lying is certainly an aspect that it can be. But not having the correct information. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, that is a thing. Yeah. A, a speak with dead spell is not a get information that get, you know, get all the information you need if you can just think of the right questions. You are asking somebody who was a person and did have their own experiences and is not omniscient. They only know what happened up to the point where they died. So and, and occasionally after, depending on the GM. Yeah. As in this instance, the, uh, the corpse was able to see people going back and forth after. Right. Dead. But still, they wouldn't know, you know, who is around the corner or yeah. anything like that. So, yeah, and that is true. I've I've had people who have felt, I've had players who have felt like, you know, Speak With Dead should basically be any question you ask, it can be able to, it should be able to answer. Uh, no. You have to recognize the limitations of the spell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So just for those of you out there that may be interested in that sort of a thing, 
take don't see speak with dead as a requirement to give them information that just like mm-hmm. so generic information use that as a potential storytelling point think about yeah. i i think about not only what did that corpse see but how did they feel about what they saw because that can drastically change how they relay the information you know um if if this was a character that had as an example if this was a character that had a you know a a very deep seated hatred for somebody and the player characters are asking them about have you seen anybody did you see anybody before you died they might waste that answer talking about that bitch or whatever uh that they were obsessed with before they died which offers a little bit of it does give you information but what do you do with that information and makes it a little bit more of a puzzle than it might necessarily otherwise be. And also gives a little bit of character to the situation. Um, definitely. So, uh, guards sometimes patrol the area, but he has yet to be found after the spell fades. The group begins to move deeper into the abandoned section of the prison. Tiberius asks Kashaw about his God, who he tells them is named Vesh, uh, which adds another VE name to the list. (laughs) Um, it won't be the last he is the singular person who knows of this deity because she killed all of her previous worshippers he was spared so that he could become her husband Uh, his his mother was told that Cash was a special child, she married him at birth and at 15 she consummated the marriage and performed a ritual that involved both Kashaw and Vesh making 50 incisions on his arm where his blood mixed with her sweat and changed one of his eyes from yellow to brown uh or was it from brown to yellow? Which no, I think he had two yellow eyes initially, and then one was changed to brown. Her evil power is now mixed with his. Uh, with his, is now mixed with his will to do good, and trying to keep him, trying to keep himself and her in constant balance. As the conversation continues, Vax sees two men coming down the hallway, and he pushes the group back as one of the two begin to call out. Um, and actually, did either one of you have anything you want to talk about? about Kashaw and Vesh, because I did. Yes, I would definitely dig into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything you want to jump off with? Do you want me to go ahead? Um, well, I I definitely enjoy the trope of the arguably good, neutral, at least, if not good person, touched by evil power and the sort of internal conflict that goes on with that. Uh Specifically because I think that's how a large majority of the human race goes about their daily lives, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, where we all struggle with what we would consider our vices, our baser impulses. And, you know, are you going to give in to that or are you going to attempt to take whatever your interpretation of the moral high road is? Um, And taking a common human experience that everybody can identify with. And putting a supernatural twist to either exacerbate or intensify it, I would say, is one of the cornerstones of fantasy in general, if not just storytelling at large. Yeah, um, for me, Kashaw and Vesh are sort of the the example that I like, and they're actually some of my Kashaw is one of my favorite characters in Critical Role. Um, mm-hmm. because oh yeah, no, Cash is fucking awesome. He is, and not even necessarily for for that, but um, he and the, the relationship between he and Vesh, 
I find is a type of character that I like to make and play and read about. Um, I very much enjoy taking simple concepts, uh, simple, what, 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 ostensibly seem like simple concepts and extrapolating them out to a grander scale. Right. Um, and that's what this is. The, like he, he, he is the fairly co- simple concept of morality, mm-hmm. uh, the, the balance of morality of good versus evil. Like he is the concept of the alignment system extrapolated out into a character. Um, and like that being one of the core tenets of his character is this balance. And I, I, I find that when you take concepts that might be difficult to talk about normally, like good, good versus evil as, as, as black and white as a lot of people may see it is not an easy discussion to have in reality. Right. Um, but when you, take it and apply it to a fantasy setting where you've already sort of left your hat at the door uh, as far as logic and, and rationale are concerned. And, and as far as the stakes that you have in the setting, um, it allows you to have a, to, to talk about subjects that you can't normally talk about easily because we've, because we've bought into the fact that gods are, you know, all the gods are real, they all exist, and they all have influences on this world. We've bought into that. So that part of the argument is done. Whether or mm-hmm. not there, the fact that there is an alignment system in the game is part of the game. That argument is done. That has been set aside. So all the existential or the external parts of the discussion have been pulled bare. And we get at the core of it, which is this man's balance of good to evil. Um, and when that, when a concept is sort of extrapolated out like that in a character, I find it wonderful. Mm-hmm. I love it because it opens it, 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 that is how you, that is how you affect people. You don't change yeah. somebody's mind by arguing with them. You change their mind by having them relate to somebody whose circumstances are different from theirs. And when you've already bought in to half the argument. Yeah. I died. I I didn't. uh, Sorry. Discord was being weird. When you've already bought into half the argument by virtue of the setting, then it's that much easier to have somebody relate and have that positive or negative depending on what you're trying to do impact mm-hmm. on a person um that can have that mentality shift or that 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 change of mind yep um and it i find that lovely and i i i i, I my favorite books are the ones that have challenged me on a subject that I thought I was firm on and by relating to those characters i found myself changing my stance um, and I think Cash is a character very much that could fill that role in certain areas. Oh, definitely. So, that's what I'm. But, I like. And and you get the idea because Cash Wilfredell plays Cash as a very sort of brusque, surly type character, and with this additional information, he pulls back that curtain to be like, oh, that's. 
possibly, if not probably, why his mm-hmm. general attitude towards everything is pessimistic, gruff, you know, glass half empty. Um, you know, everything is terrible because you get you get to see that sort of hey, he was probably a more or less given the oh, you're the chosen one who this god is going to pay a lot of attention to, but probably a fairly normal kid, and then at the age of 15, sees his entire family and or village murdered and goes through a horrifically dark ritual and is possessed by an evil goddess of chaos who may or may not have raped him, you know? And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, no, that, 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 yeah, I, I see where you're coming from now, Cash. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I love I'm going to agree Cash is one of my favorite characters and for me I love exploring the the relationships that that are between that really you can do most effectively in fantasy games the relationships between worshipers and deities. Mm-hmm. And I really really love the idea of because Fantasy and 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 to a degree certain other uh, genres <clears throat> allow you to portray it in a way that is not necessarily something that that uh, uh, goes through in the real world. Um, and there are there can be just like you know relationships between people, all different spectrums. And there's something very 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 interesting to me. In the idea of why would you still worship something that you hate? Or not even necessarily hate, but don't have a, a, a positive relationship with. I mean, I based a character, I, I, I created a character inspired by this one. So, um, <laughs> uh, it, it, for, for the Breakverse game. Um, but I really like the idea of uh, that's something that you, that it's a way that you can explore that sort of negative dynamic of relationships a way that you could only do in this genre. And those are things where, uh, that I really like where you're basically using the setting and 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 the universe to tell stories that couldn't be told elsewhere, and I like that. Yep, for sure. So, Vax pushes the group back as two guards, uh, as one of the two guards that he spotted uh, begins to call out. He sort of hustles them back uh, into an open cell, and Tiberius diffuses his light spell and tries to use his cloak of elven kind to shield uh, everyone from view. Wheaton rolls a 15 uh, on his stealth check, and as the guards walk down the hall towards the door to the refuge pit, Keela throws up a wall of stone to block them in. They use it to move back into the hall and begin looking around for any signs of where the Rakshasa may have gone. So now we've we've hit the uh, we've hit the lure guards into other area locked door behind them trope. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is you know it works um 
A noticeable increase in the chemical smell makes Torbier stop for a second and try to discern as to why this smell is familiar. Rolls a natural three. Yep. Uh, he feels as familiar as he doesn't know where from. Vax finds a locked door, and as he begins to pick the lock, he notices it getting suddenly cold, and a face appears through the door. Uh, Chris, uh, a Christmas carol, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Dickensy in England. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he fumbles trying to get away as a pair of ghostly apparitions come through the door. Wheaton rolls a nine. Uh, Tiberius casts True Strike and falls back into the hallway. The two spirits reach for Vax and Keyleth and disappear into their bodies. Seeing this happen, Thorbier tries to goad the now-possessed Keyleth into focusing on him. He swings his axe, only using the flat of the blade so as not to cut deeply, and into her, rolling a four and a fourteen, I believe with disadvantage he was rolling, because he was trying to not, not deal a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Um... Shaw tries to hold Vax, but he shrugs it off. Keyleth's possessed form takes a swing at Shaw, but she is able to push through. But she's able to push through and make the swing make the swing miss wildly. Tiberius tries to pin them both to the ceiling with stone pillars. Vax dodging out of the way, but the impact rendering Keyleth unconscious and forcing the spirit out of her body. He then fires a blast of fire at the redundancy at the creature, um, which hits, but isn't uh, but uh, isn't impacting as much as he expected because of its ethereal form. The displaced ghost screams and its face contorts in something horrific, but the effect is avoided by Tiberius and Dorbier, but Kishal sees the face of his wife and is gripped by fear. Dorbier spots quick movement to his side uh, as Vax, controlled by the thing inside him, sneaks behind Tiberius and stabs him with two daggers. They land true and he cuts, and he cuts into Tiberius. Dorbier looks at Vax, then to the creature before him, and tries to force Vax into attacking him. Uh, he rolls a six, eight, and a one. Uh, on his attempts to attack and intimidate. Um, which, he gets its attention, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that he can take the next strike better than the rest of the group around them. Kashaw blesses the group, and Tiberius pu- pulls Keyleth back from the fray. The ghost tries to strike Torbier, but misses, as the possessed Vex stab- Vax stabs a dagger into the door from behind. In an attempt to render Vax unconscious to drive the second entity out, but pulling his punches to make sure it make- makes it hard to hit, Wheaton rolls a two, a four, and a seven. Uh, he's rolled higher than ten for his perception and wisdom checks. Yes, he yes, has he not has. rolled higher than ten to hit anything except for once. This is yep. also true. Uh, ah, well, it's okay. We know that feel. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Kajal steps forward, and unleashes a torrent of divine energy, casting the undead out of Vax and forcing the other one against the wall. The creatures flee, fearing the power now coming from Kashaw as Tiberius revives Keyleth with a potion. Not taking a moment to rest, though he is still stunned from being taken over, Vax pops a healing potion of his own and kicks open the door he'd been picking. The chemical smell blasts him in the face, acrid and burning. Vax and Tobias see a room that is partially collapsed and is slowly filling with acid. They fall back while Keyleth calls, calls him over and begins a ritual to create a hero's feast. Using a lavish bowl and a series of movements and words, a massive table appears filled with meats, fruits, and bread. They sit and eat, regaining their strength and making them feel much stronger. Regaining their strength and making them feel much stronger and more durable. Rested slightly and healed, Vax goes back into the room with the acid, noticing that it moves slightly. He decides, with great agreement from Torbier, that they should try and find another way around. Vax checks another door, but finds the room beyond beyond has totally fallen in, and even if they, there was something behind it now, it was impassable. Torbier checks the final door at the end of the hall. Whedon rolls a four. Uh, seeing a spiral staircase that appears to go up to higher levels. This is most likely where the bastions come from. Keyleth takes a moment to cast her own Loki creature, and the energy lines tell her that the Rakshasa they seek is beyond the acid. 
so we've got that. We've got our um, leap of faith from Indiana Jones moment now. Yep. Which is the, you know, there's a seemingly impassable obstacle, but the thing you need is on the other side. Yep. Which is fairly you standard. You might just have to go for it. Yeah, fairly, fairly standard. I, I, I really like subverting this particular trope, uh, which is to say, making a room that seems like it's entirely trapped, and it's not at all trapped. Uh, ah, the paranoia room. Yes. yes yep. the paranoia room. I love that. <laughs> It's like, oh, here's a very specific and obvious path that you should definitely follow within this room. What happens if you step off of it? Nothing. Keyless <laughs> mm. uh, reminds Tiberius that they that he has the flying carpet in his bag, which was a point of contention on the previous episode. Uh, that re- that was uh, that that required. Uh, texting and a GM approval to ascertain. As a note, players, always make sure you know who has your magic flying carpet. Yes. Write it down. Yep. And make sure the GM knows too. Um, Kashaw gives them both a long stare as, the, as they pull a carpet from the back and they all pile on. Kashal having the reasonable reaction of what the fuck are you doing with a giant flying magic carpet in your bag? Mm-hmm. Um, they all pile on, Tiberius captaining their little ship over the noxious gas and water below them. And as they fly, they all look around to see if there were any additional traps waiting for them. Wheaton rolls a six. Tiberius points out some arcane sigils. Sigils? Yes. On the wall, uh, in the wall. Uh, Torbjörn knows that they were not part of the structure, but added after the fact. As they cross between them, as they cross between the rooms, ignite, and in a flash of light, the carpet goes limp. Tiberius casts fly on everyone, and they begin to slowly lift before the spell is zapped by the before the spell is zapped by the sigils on the walls. Keyleth, flailing for a spell, instead goes into eel form and flies over the muck. Vax slips under the carpet, trying to hold it aloft as his armor protects him from some of the acid trying to eat him alive. Tiberius and Dorbier fall into a small onto a small rocky outcropping. Wheaton rolls a twelve. While Kishaw splashes onto onto into the flow waist deep, Vax falls into a larger hole in the floor as he becomes submerged totally in the acid, which is not a thing you ever want, really. The carpet no, now fla- the carpet now flowing atop the pool of acid. This is where they lose the carpet. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh, grabs Cash, who grabs the carpet, trying to pull it and Vax out of the sludge, but he gets the carpet. Uh, but not Vax. Uh, the carpet itself being slowly eaten away by the acid on it, and the colors fading slowly out of the fabric. Vax struggles to get to the edge of the floor, pulling himself up the ass as the acid runs off of his body. Torbjörn is looking around, trying to find handholds to scale across the wall. As Keyleth flies over and grabs Tiberius, then Torbjörn, and then flies them to the other side. Tiberius sees the carpet, its magic fading fast, and pulls the mending wheel fr- uh, from his bag of holding and tries to repair it. Focuses his arcane knowledge, spinning the magic, uh, spinning the wheel faster as the material begins to repair itself. As the wheel finishes, the carpet weaving itself back together, it falls to the ground. Finish, and as Tiberius tries to use it, the item does nothing at all. The enchantment's broken by the damage from the acid. Tiberius rolls the carpet up as Vax, as Vax and Keyleth lament the coming storm. When Vax finds out they destroyed the carpet, sometimes you repair things a little too well. 
Because when I when I watched this episode, I was in the impression that it wasn't actually that the enchantment was broken by the acid damage. Because yes, generally magic items have that are enchanted have a level of supernatural durability to them as well. Um, yeah. Right now, Matt may have uh, suspended that for this incident, but. The mending wheel being a stronger magical artifact than the carpet basically restored it to its original configuration, which was it used to just be a fucking carpet, which is now what it is. Yeah, I got that. I got I got that feeling as well. Mm-hmm. Although I think the reason why it was being damaged by the acid was because the anti magic field. The, yeah. Well, I don't know if the seals were an anti magic field so much as they were a dispelling field, uh, like a or a dispel, a, right. a disjunctioning mm-hmm. field. Yeah, uh, because fly worked for a second. Yeah, and then stopped. If it was anti magic, wouldn't have worked at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I it it my thought on it was that it was the sigils were a disjunction spell. Gotcha. Which would have which broken, would work. Which is what broke. Which would have been what broke the carpet and allowed it to start getting eaten by the acid. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it wasn't Tiberius's fault. It may not have been Tiberius's fault. It may have been. We may never know. I am fairly up an inter- sure it was Tiberius's fault. <laughs> <laughs> which does bring up an interesting uh, quasi-narrative, quasi-how-you-run-your-games question. What do you do when you realize suddenly that your party has an item or an ability or access to a power or influence or what have you that if they keep having access to it, it may inhibit or even break your ability to tell the type of story that you want to? Uh, I don't know. I just give my party books that know all the answers and then see what they do. <laughs> I mean, I give I give my players things and then they don't really use them. So, <laughs> right. Uh, the more serious answer there is, I mean, yeah, you you. That's also kind of what this felt like is like you know, you don't strip them of it. No, but if they're if if they're okay with it, you modify the item. You say, hey, you know, I know I gave you guys this really cool item, but it's but I, it's a little broken. It's a little broken. I want to fi- I want you to still have it or have something like it, but I I want to fix it so that it doesn't ruin the game. Right. Mm-hmm. And if they're not okay with that, you let them use it until they overextend themselves, and you find a way to destroy it. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. That's- oh, you're super awesome, lightning javelin. <laughs> Hits the dragon, and the dragon says, "Oh shit! They've got lightning javelins," and flies away with it still stuck in its shoulder. Hmm. Yeah, like, like, yeah. You you stab a thing into it, and the monster flees, and you don't get it back. Um, <laughs> you you know you 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 throw an item at, you you throw an item that you expect to have an effect at a target that is immune to that particular effect, and now you can't get it back without waking it up. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like. There, there are a couple of different ways, and uh, this certainly felt like it was one of them because he knew that the dispel magic or disjunction sigil was there, and he knew the floor was full of acid, and he knew they were going to use the carpet if they remembered it. Right. Um. So it definitely felt like it could have been that kind of a thing, and and if so, this is definitely one of the ways that you want to do it. Like mm-hmm. you, 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 you gave them enough rope to hang themselves. 
Right. Than... You want to you want to narratively dispossess them of whatever it is that's breaking the game, not just heavy handedly be like, yeah. "All right, well that's gone and it doesn't work anymore, and you have no idea why, and there's no viable explanation. You just don't." Thieves. Thieves are great. Anyway. And then there was a very long period of silence for no reason. Okay, that was silence. I okay. can't tell because <laughs> Discord, so Discord's fucking up. For those listening, that may have sounded really weird. We were in the middle of talking and Discord said, hey, you don't need to talk anymore. <laughs> I look forward to hearing the replay on that one. Yep. Uh, sorry. I, I. What was the last thing you heard me say? Because I can't remember the last thing I heard you say. The last thing I said was thieves. Thieves are awesome. Yes. Right. I um, don't know what the last thing I heard you say. I, we will I, edit this I, out in post. No, we won't. No, um, what I was trying to say before Discord decided to have a hiccup was that um, uh, this was a situation where they could have very easily gotten through it without ever touching the magic carpet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tiberius has the fly spell. Like, they had ways to get around this. They right. just chose to use the fly spell. Or they just chose to use the magic carpet. Mm-hmm. It stands to reason they hung themselves. All right. So, continuing on. Um, While the half-elves mourn the loss of the carpet, Dorbier looks for a door or opening and cannot find one. Kshaw takes a few minutes to heal himself from the damage the acid did, feeling better, but knowing his power to cast spells is waning fast. Vax finds a door, and he and Dorbier push push it aside. Dorbier presses forward into a short corridor that opens into a larger room. A few braziers light the room as a giant statue stands just beyond what would be considered to be the foyer of a larger room. From it, the acid spews that feeds the flow that leads into the other room. <coughs> Bless you. Thank you. A few ornamental suits of armor stand around the edge of the room. Kashaw searches his knowledge of the statue, a fairly handsome man with two horns coming out of his head, and recalls that he is Dispater, an archduke of the Nine Hells and ruled city of Dis. As they enter the room, a disembodied voice begins to talk to them. He asks why they are there, hunting Hotis. He tells them that he has ways of making contra- making the contract go away, or he could offer them some other kind of contract. They may defeat his physical form, but he will return without question. Thorbier moves to block the door and attempt to prevent the devil from escaping. He stands firm, trying to suss out the creature's feelings, and rolls a natural 20 on his insight check. And he knows that this Hotis creature cares about nothing more than getting out alive, no matter the cost. If he, if he can't beguile them into letting him live, he will do so. Uh, if, he, if he can beguile them into letting him live, he will do so. Toby looks around the room and tells everyone he dies in this room. They look around the room, trying to discern where the voice is coming from, and Keyleth sees movement on the statue, and, and a necklace that was there vanishes. Uh, assuming him to be invisible, the group raises for battle, and Wheaton rolls a natural one on his initiative. From nowhere, the Rakshasa appears across the room and a spell fires at Tiberius, who counters the arcane magic with his own spell thrown from his ring. The spell failing, he flees to the farthest corner of the room. Vax fires all of his daggers from the shadows, only the last only the last of the three hitting its mark. Hodas glares his direction, snarling and growling. Vax sees that it should have done more, but something's preventing large amounts of damage to get through. As Kshaw moves to fire a spell at the creature, one of the suits of armor comes to life between him and the Rakshasa. He moves to the sideling, letting go of the sacred flame, but it is somehow magically deflected. Magically deflected. 
also mm. means he succeeded his saving throw <laughs> in this particular case. <laughs> the stone creature then raises a large hand, showing a gem lodged in the back of it, and releases a stored spell from the gem. A familiar beam of light fires over the group's heads as the fireball erupts behind them. They all dive forward, trying to get out of the way, but Thorbjörn and Kashaw take the brunt of the damage as the Wheaton rolls one on his dexterity save. That's two ones for Wheaton in a row. Keyleth casts Fairy Fire of the Rakshasa, but it has no effect. Angry, she changes it into minxy form and charges at him. Tiberius casts Slow in an attempt to help pin them, uh, pin them down for everyone else. Otis is not affected, but the Shield Guardian protecting him appears to be much heavier and open to attack. Torbjörn charges the Guardian, now open for now open for attack thanks to Tiberius, and channels his anger into hacking away at it as Wheaton rolls a 13, a, t- a 2, a 3, a 17, a natural 1, and an 18. A few other strikes land, hacking away at the creature before him, carving away some of the stone and leather that would be the body and t- bodily tissues and organs. Hodus moves and takes control of Vax, and once again he has lost control of himself. The puppeted Vax moves towards Kishaw, who notices him coming out of the corner of his eye. All three strikes land as Vax shrugs off the effect after slicing his healer to bits, and Kishaw quickly heals his wounds. As the Guardian slams a heavy fist into Torbjörn, who laughs as the blow lands, because dwarves. Keyleth bites down on Hodus, digging deeper than she thought she would. It slaps her away, but the damage has been done. Tiberius moves into position and drops a bubble of silence around the Rakshas and the Guardian, trying to prevent any further spell casting from them. Torbjörn winds up and hacks away at the Guardian, hoping to render it useless as a damage siphon for Hodus. Wheaton rolls 11, 6, and 13. The leather holding together is beginning to show signs of failing. Hodus flees the silenced area, desperately trying to find a way out of the situation, and takes to the air. Vax sneaks around the room behind the statue and tosses a pair of a pair of daggers from the shadow. The first kingdom hard, but sees the second one coming and manages to get out of the way from it. With blood dripping from its wound from his wound, Kashaw creates a massive spiritual mace and fires it at the Rakshasa, slamming into him, ripples of divine energy crushing into him. It commands the Guardian to attack Vax, who dodges one blow completely and is able to shrug off a large portion of the damage from the second blow that lands. Seeing that she can't get to Hodus and Vax seeing that she can't get to Hodus and Vax is being attacked, Keila charges the Guardian and pounces on him, sending it to the ground. Tiberius slams the Guardian to the ceiling with a stone pillar, but the Rakshasa is able to avoid it while maintaining his flight. Hodus, feeling defeated, tells them, tells them that he will hit them where it hurts the most. Tiberius' family, Thorbjörn's daughter, Vax's sister, and Keyleth's father. As he attempts to cast a Dimension Door spell, Tiberius channels the, lo- the last big burst of energy he- that he has to counter it, barely getting enough arcane juice to cancel the effect out. A spell killed, he bolts for the door. Vax runs around the back of the statue, flinging attacker at the back of his fleeing head. He flips it, puts all his force into it, striking the spinal column as the tip pokes through the front of the neck. His flight spell failing and coughing up blood, Hodus tries to crawl for the door, but Vax closes on him, pulls his head back, and tells him, you were talking about my sister, before he <laughs> slits his throat the rest of the way. And we get our we get our really good anti-hero moment there uh, with Vax, as he says, what, motherfucker says what? Slit. <laughs> I mean, is it really an anti-hero moment when you're saying, when you're saying and doing that to a demon? Yes, it still is. I disagree. Because I fully disagree. Hero, anti-heroes are fueled by revenge. Heroes are fueled by goodness and compassion. Oh, you're one of those people that thinks the motivation for your action matters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a, it, but it is, a, it is a classic anti-hero move. The, oh, no, the, it is. It is a classic anti-hero thing of... And a villain taunts you, and you kill the villain, returning their taunt. Like that is, I, 
That is a very classic anti-hero thing. Yes, absolutely. But there is also the context of when you do that to a, uh, for lack of a better term, person, and when you do that to something that is literally created out of evil is never anything but that and really doesn't even have a soul. I mean, true. It's still an anti-hero line. It's an anti-hero line, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Whether or not Vax is an anti-hero, it was still an anti-hero moment. Um, very Punisher. Strong echoes of the Punisher. Um, uh, he then kicks the corpse into the acid before the rest of the group screams at him that they need the parts. <laughs> Fantastic reaction, <laughs> which is a nice, which which is a nice little comedic break at the end of the at the end of the tense fight where Vax is like, "I'll see you in hell, motherfucker!" Kick. No, we need that. Fuck. I'm sorry. You said he'd see him where? In hell. Spoilers. Anyway, uh, that's not a spoiler. That's a. <laughs> it was a joke until you said something, Jack. <laughs> also, not a spoiler yet. Correct, and also, not, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> We're just gonna keep going down this rabbit hole, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put the shovel down for us. Okay. <laughs> I am collecting all the shovels and burning them. Don't burn them, we need them. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, he gets his body from the stream and Kiel begins to harvest the parts they need to fulfill the order. As Kishaw does his best not to vomit as she pulls out the heart and fills some vials of blood for later, uh, for later use. After a few hours of travel back to the tunnels, they, they, they came, they eventually wind up back in the Velvet Cabaret, burst into the back rooms and the guards try to stop them. Tiberius yells at them in Draconian and they continue through the room. Kila tosses them a piece of pelt from the Rakshasa and tosses it to the ground, telling them that uh, this is all that's left of their boss. <laughs> just, just a lovely Keyleth moment, because that was, you know, basically Keyleth just saw Vax being a badass. It's like, oh, wait, it's my turn. We killed your boss. <laughs> There's his bits. Um, which, which does not have the reaction she hoped for. <laughs> no, uh, Because Keyleth. Yeah. Um, I'm terribly sorry, Keyleth. One day you will rule the universe and still nobody will take you seriously. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very nice little, you know... Uh, she makes uh, the effort, at least. Contrast, you can, yeah. You can, you can always say that about Keyleth. She always makes the effort. She does. Uh, uh, Vax grabs an ale for himself and Torbjörn as they leave, and they make their way through the streets back to the guild hall the Slayer's Take. They enter the main hall and see the Huntmaster and Martin uh, talking, uh, both excited to see them back so soon. Kila tosses the bag of parts to her, showing them that their contract is fulfilled. She pulls out a small chest and pays them their gold. Kashaw says he has no need of the money and asks if his, de- that if his debt to Vanessa is paid, because he has no desire to stay. She says it is, and he's free to go about his business. He thanks everyone and tells them that it has been interesting. For the first time, he gets Tiberius' last name correct and looks Keith in the eyes. He tells her that she may be the most annoying person he's ever met, and then pulls her in and kisses her. Non-consently? Question mark. I would say yes. Yes, it definitely was not the yes. It was. 
it was very much so. I'm of an going to say this in a way that sounds movement. justificationally, and it's not. But it was a 1940s, 1950s type. It was a John Wayne kiss, dashing mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, it was. It was, um, it was the action hero kisses the girl at the end of the movie bit. Yes. Um, which is still non-consensual. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But less rapey than some other things we've seen earlier. Yes. <laughs> less offensive than Scandal. Which is okay. Low bar. We'll just come out and say it. Yes. Which, which is offensive. a low bar. It's <laughs> a very low bar. Also, also. I, whether or not I don't I don't I don't remember if it was said in character, but uh, uh, Marisha at the very least was into it, so like she thought it was funny. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't remember if there was a statement made by Keyleth at the end there or not, but I think it was mostly stammering. Yeah, because it's Keyleth. Mm. Hey, let's go over. Gives her a wink and walks out the door. Torbier sighs heavily and leaves as well, and that. That is the end of the Trial of the Take series. Um, very interesting sort of divergence from the previously established that, uh, storytelling standard for Critical Role. Mm-hmm. I think it's really, for me at least, I don't know about you guys, but the Trial of the Take was definitely the part where it started to become more than just a D&D game. Uh, at least for me as an audience member, it was th- this. This is definitely one of the parts where it started to go. Like previously, it obviously had a, a level of importance beyond it, but this was where it went from people playing D and D and critical role. If that makes any sense, yeah. No, totally. I mean, there's some there. That's fair. Um, and there's reasons for that because this is the first real story after chapter one ended. Yeah. Chapter one is very much your classic dungeon crawl. So it's very when you when when we're looking at that, we're looking at it and it is what basically anybody who's ever played D D has done at least once. Um mm-hmm probably far, 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 far more than once. Um, the, the journey down into the dungeon to defeat the monster at the end and, 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 and yada, yada, yada. Um, so I don't know about you guys, but Discord just went blah for me. I think it's still okay for me. All I, heard, all I heard was chapter one was a dungeon crawl and I heard nothing after that. Oh. <laughs> I heard well, I said things. Yeah, you can hear them. You can hear them when 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 you go back to to hopefully if it was put it together. Having an issue, all right. Um, but yeah, no, that was very much the classic dungeon crawl that we've all done. Chapter two, or this is sort of the first major story thing in chapter two, and it did something that we're not used to seeing in a in a Dungeons and Dragons game, which is first of all splitting the party, but Splitting the party and adding new characters to each one for temp for a temporary period of time, in what is a tip quote unquote typical D and D game, that's not something that generally happens. That's a, I've I've had 
something similar happened before, but it's very, very rare that you're like, well, I have just enough people for this situation to split them off and then to bring a couple of people in on this side and a couple of people on this side and it'll work perfectly. Um, so it definitely is. It was a point where it sort of became something different from just a highly enjoyable stream D&D game with great accents. Yep. Um, Mm -hmm. It became something, it it became more what it is now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it... More of a a TV show. Right. The the Vasselheim arc gave a level of depth to it. Um, I think that we had not really seen that much of up until this point. Um, They were embodying their characters very well, but this, I feel, really set the characters into the setting in a way that had not yet happened. And this is sort of also where everyone begins to sort of hit their stride. Mm-hmm. as characters it, it, it very much like the prior to the trial of the take we were being introduced to everybody and everyone was still learning their stuff really um still learning sort of their not necessarily their role in the party but their mechanical role in the game um and then this section happened and that's when we as the audience started to key into where you know sort of their characterizations and what their motivations are what drives them what causes them to behave differently than what they normally do we got that great anti-hero bit this you know this you know you were talking about my sister's slit throat um yeah. part we we start seeing these people as characters rather than as player characters was roughly this part and it only gets better from here uh-huh so we will be back next week with uh our mente to pyra episode 22 yep yes say goodbye everybody bye everybody goodbye, goodbye.